edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 4th, 2021, and this is episode 2835 of the Survival Podcast. It's called From Zero to Prepped, Fast, Cheap, and Easy. And I want to set the stage for this as to what today's show will be and what it will not be. If you are a seasoned prepper, I have no doubt by the end of this show, you'll be able to like, man, he left out this, he left out that, he left out this, he left out this other thing, you know, what about this? You just talked about comms yesterday, is it comms? Look, this is what I'm doing today. This is a show that I promised to do since the great Texas blackout and cold front of 2021 a couple weeks ago. This is a show that I'm doing as much for this audience as I am for my neighbors, My wife has requested this show because she's seen people on next door in our own, not just our neighborhood, but our surrounding area, our whole next door coverage area. For those who don't know, next door is kind of like Facebook, but it's for your regional area only, your own little backyard. Not only having had suffered through this event, but with very defeatist attitudes, you can't, you can't do all this stuff. And, and, She was trying to explain in text the, the basic things we do, not the advanced things we do. And, and it was the basic things that we do that made us coast through this event as though it wasn't a thing. We made it through this. It was not a big deal. The only mistake we really made, because I also promised you guys an AAR. Well, here's the AAR, right? My biggest mistake in this was, one, I did not have enough water stored because I was relying on other sources of water that I'll talk about today. Um, we were still fine. It just would have been better had we had more water stored for needs beyond our own, for our animals, because the way things froze, my usual go-to would be, well, just take a shovel, knock a hole in the ice, take a bucket, and dip water out of one of the ponds, right? And that wasn't really easy to do this time. And that's the same for like flushing toilets and stuff like that. So that was one. And the other, the other mistake was we didn't bring the generator indoors before we needed it. And when it, the power went off at 3.30 in the morning, I couldn't get it started until a few hours later. By then, we had some freeze-up problems that had to be repaired when the power came back. That's it. There's no reason for me to do any more of an AAR on our preparedness for that event because those are the only two things that we found that were weaknesses and we had enough redundancy that they ended up in the long run not mattering. In fact, I give you, I'll give you this, too. I knew Saturday night, I guess it was, that the power was going to go out. I knew it would happen. I absolutely knew when I saw what was coming in, I didn't know exactly how long, exactly why. I knew the power would go out. The smartest thing I could have done right then was get my large generator out, start it up, which I did to test it. But then when it cooled down in the garage, it wouldn't start in the morning, right? Um, or, again, 3.30 in the dark. I should have fired it up before we went to bed. I should have hooked up everything to it that we needed to keep running, and I should have took it off the grid before the power went down. I should have got out ahead of it. So there's that's it. There's my entire AAR. The other thing I planned on doing and I promised to do, though, was help others get ready so you could coast through it like we did. That's what today's show is all about. 
I'm going to tell you, you can do everything here for under $2,000. And you can do it for a lot less than that, and you don't have to do everything. Some of this is you really should. Some of this is nice to have. The majority of it is free or no real long-term cost. So you might spend a little bit more money today, but over a year you've not spent a dime you wouldn't have spent anyway. The majority of it falls into one of those two categories. So even if you don't do some of the things that are a little bit more expensive, because if we talk about things like getting a generator, that's a couple hundred dollars to a thousand dollars to more, depending on what you want, right? But, I mean, you can literally fill every gap in for well under $2,000 here with the mindset of, I want to be prepared for a week. Just a week. That's, that's where I want to get people to. And I'll tell you what. Anybody that just went through this disaster in Texas, which was one of the, like, this is the first time I've seen a disaster in Texas other than a hurricane, certainly a statewide disaster or majority of a state disaster that made national news for a week. First time. People still talking about it. First time. Been here since 1993. First time. If you were prepared for a week, if you'd done the things we're going to cover today, you would have coasted through this. Without any of the advanced strategies that we used here, without any of the homesteading, without any of the livestock. In fact, without livestock, it would have been easier because you wouldn't have to worry about them. So we're talking about animals today as well and being prepared. But that's where we're coming from, the basics. Now, if you are a seasoned prepper, if you've been listening to me for a long time and you're thinking, maybe I'll just tune out today then, Jack, because I'm ready to go. I promise you when we go through this process, you're going to find some places where you're like, you know, really... That spot right there needs it's an itch that needs a little bit of scratching. And so you can either find those little little itches that need a scratch through my programming, or like me, you can find it by when the disaster comes going, huh, that didn't quite do what it was supposed to do. And you too will be doing an AAR. For new people, that would be an after-action review. With that, before we jump into this subject, I want to lead off with a quote of the day. This is by one of the most famous people in science and a reason that society has thrived the way it has because of the, the process known as pasteurization. Of course, I'm talking about Louis Pasteur. Now, you might not think of Pasteur as a guy that you would rely on for advice about preparedness, but he said once, fortune favors the prepared mind. Fortune favors the prepared mind. That's what we're really talking about today. The fact that The people that do well in the world are prepared for the things that don't go right. That's It's a real simple process because if most people, as long as things go right, they're okay. When things go wrong, they get knocked down or knocked back. And then they have to catch back up after things kind of restore. People who are prepared for the negative, they either don't get knocked down or knocked back, or they get knocked down or knocked back less. Think of it like this way. There's, there, there's five people running a 100-yard dash, right? And some of them are faster than others, and it looks like there's a clear victor. But about 50 yards into the 100-yard dash, there's four really big guys. And the guy in lane one, who was the fastest guy, looked like a sure in the wind, that big guy clocks him in the mouth as hard as he can, and he just takes it, knocks him flat out. He's not winning the race. Lane two, guy kind of clotheslines him, soft clothesline. Now, he was the second fastest guy. He's probably still not winning, right? The, 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 the third guy, right, he's the guy just kind of starts pushing him, like kind of blocking him like you do in football. So he keeps moving, but he just keeps has to, having to jostle with him, all right? 
Maybe he's winning, maybe he's not. He, at least he's still moving. He's got it somewhat prepared. The fourth guy, when that guy gets in his way, he's got some martial arts training. He ducks, belts the guy in the gut, trips him, and hauls ass. You think he's going to win, right? Well, the fifth guy, there's no one there. There's no one in his way. He might be the slowest person and end up winning the race. That's our gentleman who was fully prepared or was so well prepared with basics that for the individual event, he was totally prepared at least for that event. It almost It's almost like it didn't happen. The guy in lane four is the guy where maybe the disaster hit a little bit harder, but he was well prepared. The guy in the third lane got the basics. The other two, not prepared at all. One was just a little bit better at dealing with the disaster than the first one. Which one would you like to be? I'm thinking the fourth or fifth lane is where you want to be. And that's where I'm trying to take you today because fortune favors the prepared mind. So here we go. Real basic stuff. I want you to think about this as we go into it like setting up a living room. If I give you a chair and a couch and a couple tables and some lamps, TV set, some other furniture, basic stuff you lay a living room out with, and say, put together a living room. And you're standing there, and you're in the middle of a field. There are people that will kind of visualize and go, yeah, like, well, got shade this way, so the TV should be over there. And like, you know, but we're in the middle of a field. I don't really know. Or if I give you a giant um, warehouse with no walls, where are you going to put the living room? You have to then define your own boundaries in order to set up an arrangement that makes sense as a living room. You have to define the other boundaries if you're going to live there without walls. Like this is going to be a kitchen area. Maybe I need an outside wall for this. Like you have to. You, you see what I'm saying? Like it's it's actually kind of hard to do it. But if I give you a house that has a living room in it that's defined, even if it's not ideal. And I give you all the stuff that goes in the living room. 20 people coming into it are only going to design that living room one or two, maybe three ways at the most in the way they lay it out. And even those differences are going to be have some large um, similarities. If, if like my living room, one wall is almost all windows, well, you're not going to put the TV there. You're not going to put a couch. You're not going to block the view. Right? And so if there's an outlet on a wall and cable outlet, That's probably where the TV's going. You have to make some major efforts to change that. So you're probably going to put that there. And then since we're going to look at windows and TV, primarily in a living room, then our couch, our chair, they're going to go kind of here and there. And it's going to get real simple to put that living room together because we've put design restrictions in. We've defined boundaries. And once we define those things, everything kind of falls into place. That makes sense. People do it every day. I guarantee you, if you go into the average living room you, and you look at the layout the person used. You might be able to flip some stuff around a little bit, but you're going to come up with something similar and you'll understand why they did what they did because the, the boundaries are defined. Now, let's look. What are our boundaries then for preparedness? There are six primary survival needs. These are the things that humans need to be comfortable and survive and then a nice to have, which are the additional comfort items. The things that make your life just a little better a little bit more comfortable, 
And if you think about every time there's a disaster, especially like somewhere in the third world or something, and they're, they're asking for money to the Red Cross, which you should never do because the Red Cross is the worst steward of money to help people in a disaster that has ever existed on planet Earth. You'd be better off putting your money in an envelope and randomly mailing it to a person in the area than giving it to the Red Cross. Trust me, I've had people on the ground where they're supposed to be active. It is that bad. Okay, But when you do hear the, the, the pleading, help out, please, what do they need? Food, water, medicine, comfort items. And that's a big part of it. And the comfort items, and then what they're talking about is getting people back into some form of housing and being able to keep people warm or dry. So now we need energy. And that's exactly how this all works out. We need food. That's a, that's a primary human survival need. We still have grocery stores in Texas that are mostly empty, especially on certain items. And we're over two weeks away from this now. Water. One of the greatest needs that people didn't have during this. One of the biggest problems people have was with water. Energy. <laughs> You're cold. You know what you want? Heat. You know what heat is? Energy. People want to cook. Energy. People want to be able to see. That means lighting. That means energy. You want to pump water. You need energy. So energy. Security. It was pretty cold out this time. For this disaster in Texas, so there wasn't a whole lot of people running around stealing stuff. When it gets really cold like that, people tend to seek shelter, which ironically is our next survival need, right? But security is something we need to be thinking about. We will cover it today, and we'll probably put the least amount of time into it as one of the individual units, even though I'm so high on it. But you're also going to figure out that security is a big part of all the other ones. So what comes after security is shelter. Because that's what people were seeking, shelter, someplace to be warm. I watched people at a racetrack, which if you're not from around here, is kind of like a great big convenience store with food and like mini grocery store and all that. And I watched people at a racetrack here standing, warming their hands over those roller things for those disgusting sausages and hot dogs they sell in those places and those little egg roll burrito things, like warming their hands over that. Right here, right in my own backyard. So, yeah, shelter is kind of important. Health and sanitation is your, 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 your final one out of your survival needs. And you'll see, much like security, it is anchored into the other ones a great deal. And then, nice to have comfort items. These are the things that make your life, again, just a little bit better. And all of this is cheap versus the alternative. Some cost you money, but you control your budget and your priorities. So I'm going to give you like the things you need to think about, the things that you can do. And then you can prioritize the order in them based on your resources. But again, you'll find a lot of them don't really cost any money at all. Some of them cost a little money now, but in the end, you don't, like I said, over a year, over 18 months, you spend no more money than you'd have spent anyway, or most of the extra money is recouped. And when we get into energy, you'll see a very concrete example of that. But this all spins around my, my 12 tenets of modern survivalism, Based on the things you do should make your life better, even if nothing goes wrong. But tenant 12 is the real one I want you to focus on as we go through this. And that is that what you do matters, and you must write and execute your own plan. This is not, hey, do all these things in this order this way today. Okay? Because you may have some of it done already. You may have the things you need. You just need to maybe arrange your procedures and protocols a little bit differently.
Somebody else may be starting completely from square one. One person may be starting from square one, but if it comes to spending a few thousand bucks, they can just go do it. And another person might wonder if I'm going to be able to pay my rent this month. So you every yes, there are challenges anytime economics comes into the equation. But I want you to focus on this. Everything that costs money here, when you're in a disaster, if you had the money, you'd probably pay twice as much willingly, even if you cussed a little bit under your breath, to make it go away. So no, it's not expensive. And again, a lot of it can be recouped. Everything we discussed today is focusing on self-reliance for all your needs and basic wants for just seven days. And here's why. It will generally, not always, but generally, get people through whatever gets thrown at them. Now, if you look at the pandemic, we're still dealing with shit with this a year into it. And for a lot of parts of the country, you're going to continue to deal with it for six months to another year because your governors are stupid, right? But the things we give you here would have helped you through that initial on-ramp when everybody lost their minds back in March and April and all the store shelves went devoid of toilet paper. In general, that type of disaster, though, things kind of level out, and pretty much people, other than being down on money, which is something we're not talking about today, we do put a lot into retirement, savings, income, side hustle, and other episodes. And that's not something I can address with this. But if you had money, you generally were okay getting through the pandemic, and you still are. Even if you had just enough money, just enough, right? And, and this is actually where the pandemic is a blessing and a curse with preparedness. It looks like the worst thing that could possibly happen to a lot of people. And they got through it pretty comfortably. Maybe they're miserable because they're locked down or something like that. But overall, like, they didn't really go hungry unless it's a poverty issue, right? They didn't go without shelter. They, it, it, it's like it was marketed as the zombie apocalypse, but the zombies are actually the people that buy 100% into the, the general narrative. So what that's told people is, well, even if it's as bad as it can get, I'm fine. And then, you know, something like this Texas storm comes in and many other events we've dealt with and went, yeah, here's Mother Nature telling you that's not the way it works. But if you can get through seven days, you can generally get to a point where there's enough stability restored that you're going to be okay. And I know some of you are like, man, you know, you know, Jack, don't you usually talk about 60 days? Absolutely. And do you know what comes between zero days and 60 days? One day, two days, up seven days, right? So if we can get most people to seven, we will take immense pressure off the system during an event to where even the people that are only ready for seven days, by the time the seven days are up, can get the additional things that they require. That's why seven days, because it's easy to do, it's inexpensive to do, it makes sense to do, people can get their head around it, and you know what? At least 14 days is a better deal. And the beautiful thing is once you're ready for seven, you can say, well, that wasn't that hard. And going to 14 isn't even doubling your efforts. You just know everything to do that needs to be doubled, and you double the things that need to be doubled. So and then if you want it, then you want a month, you do it again. And it gets real easy that way. So let's start off with need one, food. This is what I think the most important and overlooked aspect of preparedness with food is, and I'm the only one that I know of teaching it, and I've been teaching it since 2008, the food journal. And the food journal is not fancy. It doesn't even need to say food journal on it. All it is 
is a notebook or even a stack of paper off the printer. And all you do is you put that in the, on the counter in your kitchen. Don't skip this. And for at least two weeks, write down every stinking thing you, your family, and your pets eat. And so Monday, write it all down. Tuesday, write it all down. Wednesday, write it all down. Then start, as you do this for at least two weeks, look for things that appear multiple times, put a check mark by them. Of those things with a check mark, look for things that easily store without energy, such as refrigeration and freezing. Put a star next to them. You have just identified the things that you buy and use anyway that are storable and used frequently. This is where you start your copy canning slash copy boxing. And what I mean by that is, let's say you have a particular canned good that you, you use frequently, a couple times a week, maybe even a couple times a month. Rotel tomatoes, wolf chili, I don't know, it doesn't matter. And this is not a nutrition lesson, so I'm not judging anybody's choices here. You're already eating the stuff, whatever it is. Okay, so you've identified canned good A is something you use once a week. So that means you probably go to the grocery store about once a week and you buy a can a week. The next time you go to the grocery store, you buy two or three or four, depending on the price and your budget, cans of it. And you bring it home. And you put it in your pantry. And just like the supermarket, you put the newest item in the front and you stack them back in your pantry, just like they do on the shelves of the store. And, and, and with this, you want to go beyond seven days because you're going to now rely on something that maybe you ate once a week. Maybe you're going to rely on it three or four times a week while you get through this. You might get a little bored, but you'll eat well. And you're going to feed your family things that they're used to eating, so they're not like, ew, why are we eating Mountain House freeze-dried survivalist food? Because you don't need to do that. And once you get that item, and you can do this with two or three items at a time, depending on your budget and your spatial limitations. Once it's, you've got that one, you're like, you know what? There's enough here for, for the next two months on normal usage of this food. Go to another item, or two or three, and do it again. And do that with every item that's on your list with a check mark and a star by it. That alone will take you a huge way in the right direction. The next thing you can do for a bit more long-term stability, come up with some basic dry food storage items. Now, I don't eat rice. I don't eat beans. I don't eat noodles. I'm a very keto, meat-centric, meat-and-fat diet person. But we still have these items in storage. Because if we need to rely on them, they're there. When they're stored properly, they last 25 years or more. They don't require any special, real special handling or anything like that. You can literally dump rice in a five-gallon bucket, put a lid on it, and it will be fine. What I always do with my five-gallon bucket storage, and be prepared for a lid not to come off, so get a lid opener and be prepared to have to drill a hole in it anyway if you need to open it. You go down to the sporting goods store or like Walmart or whatever, and it's a good time of year to do it because they're on clearance now, get the hand warmers, the little baggy hand warmers that you shake up and they get all warm and you keep your hands warm with them, those are an O2 absorber. That's what they are. They work exactly the same as an O2 absorber that you buy from a specialty store to preserve food, except they're much larger. They are chemically identical to a, a regular oxygen absorber. All they are is iron filings with a chemical that accelerates rust. That's all an O2 absorber is. When iron oxidizes or rusts, It gets hot if it happens quickly. The other thing it does, though, is what? It, it takes the oxygen out of the air, and it bonds it with the iron. That's how an O2 absorber works. So when I do the dry, can, dry storage, 
with a big bucket load of beans or rice or whatever. You fill it most of the way up, throw the O2 absorber in there, lock it down. You want to do Mylar bags and all, go ahead, God bless you, but that is the basics of what you need to do. And it's not going to get hot and melt or burn anything down because once it absorbs the oxygen that's available, it'll shut down. It'll stop. That's why they, are, that's why they work when you open them in the first place. They put them in a, a sealed bag where it can't get exposure to oxygen. That's, that's all they are. So you can add that. I really think people should consider adding a freezer to their lineup. I haven't talked about that a lot lately because when COVID came, everybody did it. They were almost impossible to get. They're fairly easy to get now. You want to look, if you're going to keep this out in a garage or an outbuilding, you want to look for something that's labeled as garage ready. We've already had one freezer die on us. The new freezers are not like the old freezers. Honestly, as people don't think this is a problem anymore, it's a great idea to look on Craigslist, Nextdoor, etc. for people that are selling very old chest freezers. The older, the more likely to last for 25 years. I know that sounds ridiculous, but if you're going to put it out in a garage or something, there's a huge component to that. The one that we had that went bad, the guy that we had to look at it to fix it said it would cost you more to fix it than it is to replace it. So think about where an extra freezer is going to go and buy accordingly. There is no sense in doing this unless you're going to get a generator, though, where, you know, as far as a preparedness item. Now, as a convenience item, they're fine. But if you want it to be able to keep your food cold when there's an outage not in the winter, but in the summer, you're going to need a generator to go with it. So, you might, again, you're going to prioritize this yourself. Ice storage. This is really important. If you have a chest freezer, an extra refrigerator freezer, a refrigerator freezer in the house, whatever, if it is not full, take a bottle, a plastic bottle, fill it up most of the way, not all the way so it doesn't break, put a lid on it, and fill your freezer with bottles of water that will become bottles of ice. This is a thermal battery. We always think of batteries like you put two AA batteries in a flashlight, the light comes on. That's an energy battery. This is a cold battery, right? So when you have that freezer completely full and solid chunks of ice in it, you have very a very efficient cooler. That's going to keep your food in shape a lot longer. Get yourself, you know, if you just don't, if you don't have the, the space or the money for extra stuff, moving blankets are an incredibly cheap and effective way to do this. We keep them around for other things. So you can just, when the power's out, you just throw them over your freezer refrigerator. And it'll keep it cold longer and only open it when you need to during this time. Most people can easily go in the, you know, unless your house is 150 degrees inside because you don't have any alternative source of cooling and it's a heat wave, it easily 48 hours before you lose any food. As soon as it happens, go ahead and eat the ice cream. Eat the ice cream because that's going to be the first thing to melt and, and, and get ruined on you. Um, but ice, ice storage. And then last on food, I will throw in a garden, but I'll tell you that it will only really help if the outage ha or your, your, your failure happens at a time of year when your garden's in production or if you're using your garden to store surplus. So I'm not going to get deep into gardening today at all, but it is a great idea to have some food production at home. Need number two, water. This is real simple. Fill and store jugs and have at least 50 gallons of water for drinking, cooking, and the most basic hygiene available to you inside your home in a place where if the power goes out, they won't likely freeze up real fast anyway. Now, there's all kinds of expensive water storage solutions. And I think rain catch, backyard ponds, all that stuff is a great idea, and we do it. 
However, 50 gallons of water will prevent you from going down to the convenience store when you finally can and it's finally open and ending up paying $60 a case for water and then putting a picture on Facebook like it's their fault that they sold you the water for the same price they sell it for every day, but you bought it by the case. And it's a convenience store that sells bottles of water individually or this happened at a Best Buy too in Texas during a hurricane. It was, it was marketed as price gouging because they were charging, you know, what amounted to like 40 bucks for a case of water. But if you did the math, they were charging exactly what they charged for a little water cooler. You open the door and you buy a bottle of water when you're checking out at Best Buy. 50 gallons of water stored in your house, this is not going to happen. Here's the good news. You live in a country where water comes out of a faucet, totally safe to drink. I believe in filtering water. We'll get to that in a second. There are some issues, but in general, you drink that water all the time. There's no need to buy any bottle of water. What you want to store your water in is not milk jugs, not because I'm worried about residual milk, because you can go to a store and you can buy water that comes in essentially a milk jug. That is not what you want. Over time, those containers always fail. They rupture, and then the water leaks out on your floor. And then you're, you don't have water, and you have water damage. And this is not good. You want a container that has been used to store an item that is acidic, carbonated or both if you have that you have a food grade container that can handle water for as long as you're going to be alive if it's kept you know in a cool dry space okay um the best thing we've ever found are the gallon jugs that like arizona iced tea comes in you clean them out they work great if you're worried about any kind of residue Put like two drops at most of bleach in them. Fill them up. Put the lid on. You know, leave about an inch gap. Give it a good shake. Take the lid off. Dump it out. Dump it out with that amount of chlorine. Dump it on your plants if you want to. Leave it sit upside down. Let it dry out so any of the residual smell or stink of the bleach is gone. Fill it up with clean water. Put the lid on it. Stick it wherever you store your water. That's it. Do not worry. Your water is not going to go bad. It's not going to cultivate and grow E. coli or something like that. If it's water with no source of food and you put clean water into it, it is not going to go bad. It will go bad never. It will start to taste flat. Maybe it will taste a little bit plastic taste. So every once in a while, maybe use a, use a jug, make your coffee with it, whatever, and fill it back up to rotate it. But 50 gallons of water that way, 2-liter soda bottles, bang on. It's carbonated and acidic. It will last for damn near ever. I'm serious. You will not open your closet where you store your water and find a wet floor and no water if you do this. If you do milk jugs, sooner or later, you will. Maybe you'll look up one day and enough of them will fill at one time that there'll be water dripping from your your uh, your, your ceiling because you stored them upstairs in a closet. Think about how much water weighs. Where you put it, maybe not all the water in the same place. Okay. If you have 50 gallons of water, you have 400 pounds. Think about where you put it. Like if you stack it in a vertical stack in one place, that's a lot of weight over one floor joist. Just, just saying, think about that. Um, but those, that is your easy and it should be free. And if you're like, I don't drink soda, I don't drink iced tea, I don't drink apple juice, etc. Good for you, neither do I. I bet you know somebody who does. Tell them to, to save the containers for you and give them to you. Until you have 50 gallons of water minimum stored. If you do that, so much will just go away. Apple juice and things like that, it leaves behind this weird, funky, kind of like you drink the water out of it. It tastes like, like you left a little bit of apple juice in the bottom of the glass and filled it up. Fill those with hot water with a little bit of bleach. Let them sit overnight. Put them upside down. Let them dry out. 
do the treatment twice. That'll usually get rid of it. If it doesn't, a little baking soda will generally get rid of that flavor for you. Get a good water filter system. Do whatever you want. I don't care. I recommend Berkey. They are a sponsor of the show. Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason is a sponsor of the show. It is the most cost-effective water filtration system that I can think of. But what I love about it is it's a gravity-fed system. So when all your other power and stuff is out, it still works. If you have like an RO system or something like that and it relies on power, it's okay if you have backup power. If you don't, then you're without a filtration system at the time that you need it the most. So I'd rather ha I'd rather you have a freaking Brita pitcher, which isn't the best, but it's better than a system that relies on power that you do not have. So have a water filtration system in, uh, available to you. Identify any sources of water that you might normally ignore. Okay, so if you have a pool, for instance, you know you. You need to just mentally set aside that that water's there. You want to know why? So let's say, for one reason or another, your water pressure's gone. But your pipes aren't frozen, especially your sewage pipe. And you got to take a crap. Now your health and sanitation issue with that is just not an issue, right? You go outside with a five-gallon bucket, you get the water. You come back in the house, you lift the toilet. Don't put it in the tank. And flush like normal. Dump it in where you go. And when you dump enough water, it'll trigger a flush. And that'll save the stuff in the back tank. They'll, it'll be there in reserve if you ever need it for any last ditch survival need. Okay? Just dump it in the bowl and it'll flush. That's one example. You can also, you know, a lot of other water sources that are not great for you to consume. They may still be fine if boiled to consume if you need to to cook with if boiled, or washing dishes is a huge issue in a situation like this. So if you have a big pot, you can go out and get your pool water, you can throw it in there, you can bring it up till it's steaming hot, now you can do your dishes. Now you can, you can clean up your, your stuff. So any additional water that you can think of that you might normally not think of as being for people may be. If you have ponds, Even like a little backyard ornamental pond like I do. Now you have a source of water for animals. They can generally drink what we can't and be just fine with it. My ducks poop in their water in their little pools all the time, so I'm not real worried about giving them water out of a fish pond. All right. Um, store additional water if you can. Rain catch, IBCs, poly tanks. I have 3,000 gallons. That's expensive as a solution, but you can go get some food-grade IBCs. They're between 275 and 300, 330 gallons apiece. They will cost you less than buying one of those stupid, useless, piece-of-crap rain barrels at Home Depot or Lowe's. They are useless, folks. They are useless for your garden. Do not buy those things. They hold at best about 50 gallons of water. That will not get you anywhere when it comes to rain catchment. Your roof, for every square foot on your roof, gathers a half a gallon of water per inch of rainfall. You, you see what I mean? The capacity of a barrel is exceeded so quickly as to be useless. You can go get food-grade IBCs often for under 50 bucks, and those rain barrels are more than that. If you got three 300-gallon ones, you got 900 gallons of water from your roof. You don't even have to be that handy to plumb in your downspout to it. 
And now you got some. Now you can water your garden. You can do all those things, but you got that extra water. So consider that as well. Um, identify groundwater that you might be able to access. Is there a creek down the road? Is there a park pond? Is there someplace you can get to relatively quickly, harvest some water, and get back? I've, I've seen things as simple as a 12-volt water pump that you can run off a battery of your truck, and then you can throw some bins in the back of a truck, and you can pump water right out of a stream or a creek or whatever in there. Again, I know you don't want to drink that, but it can wash things. It can provide water for animals. It can flush toilets. And people sit with no water, with water all around them, with no idea how to go get it. So th just identify it and start thinking, how could I collect this and use it if I needed it? And keep items for sanitation that don't require a full shower. You know, wh Whatever that means for you, uh, we used to do a thing in the Army that we called a certain kind of bath that I won't use the word for here because I know this might bring people from outside the fold and aren't used to the language that I usually use. Um, but basically be able to clean yourself and keep relatively clean without standing in a shower for 20 minutes. Because even if you do everything right, that might still be necessary. Let's move on to energy. Number one, have an EDC light. What is an EDC light? EDC stands for everyday carry. Um, the item of the day today is a Streamlight Stylus Pro flashlight. I'm holding one in my hand because it's my EDC light. I won't talk about it now. I'll talk about it when we get there. Um, it's a little pen light. It uses two AAA batteries. You push a button, a light comes on. You push a button, a light goes out. Very, very simple. EDC means everyday carry. If you don't always have it, in your pocket, on your body, somewhere, it's not EDC, it's SDC, sometimes carry, someday carry, right? Everyday carry. What that means is it becomes part of your everyday life, just like you carry a wallet or anything else you carry on your person. The reason you're going to do this is unless you know you're in your shorts for the night on the couch, if the power goes out anywhere in the house, you have a light. And then anything that needs to be done, you can get to your other resources, It's one of the most simple things, and yes, to a degree, your cell phone counts. Your little flashlight on your cell phone. I still believe in having a good EDC light because when the power's out, we want to reserve the cell phone power as best as possible. Right? So we want to have a good EDC light. Keep battery-powered lights around your house. What we do, my favorite go-to large flashlight is a 3D cell mag light LED bulb. It's my, my favorite general light. It's a pretty good self-defense weapon, especially in the dark when you blind somebody before you crack them in the face with it as well. But it's just a good, robust, throws a lot of light, easy to find because it's large. Since it's not for carrying around in your pocket, large is better because it's easier to see. If you have to set it on something, you can set it on its cap and it lights a whole room. You got me? I keep one in the windowsill by my back door and the windowsill by my front door. I have some other ones, but I minimum those two. Keep fresh batteries in them at all times. That way, you can get to that additional light, and then you can find your way to your other stuff. Build a basic, simple blackout kit. This would be some things in there. should be stuff like low-cost LED lanterns. I have some great ones I recommend from E-Tech City. Um, a radio of some sort that, that, that is not reliant on internet. So AM, FM, if you want to do an emergency type radio like the Red Cross ones or things like that, I have some of those I have that I recommend on, on my website as well. Um, I don't care what though. 
be able to turn the damn radio on and get information when you can't get information any other way. Uh, maybe in your blackout kit, maybe in your car, maybe in your drawer, whatever, get some good backup packs for cell phones. Uh, Anchor is the company I recommend for that, but you know, have a way to charge your cell phones. Have car charges for your cell phones and things like that. But have everything you need. So if you're relying on generators, in your blackout kit goes your extension cords and your, your little three-way adapters, power strips, whatever. Like drill this stuff too. We'll talk about that toward the end. Consider getting a backup heater, at least one. For most people in the United States, this is important. Some of you live in places where you won't ever really need backup heat. If you're in Miami, odds are you'll be fine without backup heat. If you ain't in the Keys or Miami or extreme Southern California, I'll put it to you this way. There wasn't a county in the state of Texas that didn't go below freezing during this weather event. So backup heat. Deciding between propane and kerosene. If you have reliable available, affordable kerosene, and you don't have like a propane pig or natural gas where you can put space heaters in, I would always go with good quality kerosene heaters. I'm not going to get into why they're safe. I have a whole write-up on that. If you want to look it up on my website, just search for kerosene on my website. Um, it is we, we use them extensively in Pennsylvania to cut the cost of our electric bill. They are fantastic. Propane is also safe if used properly, and it's what I use here because we do not have reliable, inexpensive, widely available kerosene in Texas. So have a backup heat source. Next, if you have a fireplace, you're like, well, if there is a power outage, I'm going to heat my house with a fireplace. No, you won't. No, you won't. Your fireplace is lousy at heating your house, and it will actually make your peripheral rooms get colder. The little bit of heating it does, and the, the vast majority of the heat going up and out the chimney will create a thermal siphon effect that will pull the air out of your, your, your further out rooms, and it will drop their temperature, even though it will slightly raise the temperature in the room you're burning the fireplace. I'm sorry, that's the way physics work. I didn't make the rules. If you really want to rely on a fireplace, you either need to have something like a masonry fireplace or something like that's purpose-built, designed for heat, or you need to get a thing called an insert. And I would this is this is going to be one of the most expensive potential things, but it will if you live in a place where you routinely heat your home, it will pay for itself if you start using wood for supplemental heat anyway. So you will recoup the investment. This is basically halfway between a wood stove and a fireplace. And it goes into the fireplace and essentially it turns the fireplace, and I'm going to say into half a wood stove because it doesn't have, you know, the back's not exposed or whatever. It will never have the efficiency of a wood stove, but they are incredibly efficient. Okay? Um, have a means to cook with beyond an electric stove. This can be like, I recommend the Camp Chef stove, right? That's, that's a great way to go. Uh, they're about a hundred bucks, and I, I, it amazes me. People are like you can't use that indoors. Why not? You'll die. You'll kill you. Why? Now you should not use a gas stove to try to heat your house. That's stupid. But I, I want someone to explain to me 
Why running my little $100 camp chef stove with a little propane burner on it to boil water inside my home is any more dangerous than me setting a big pot of stew on my gas range that also runs on propane that's plumbed to a 120-pound tank outside of the house and simmering stew all day long on a cold Sunday? How is it more dangerous? And it isn't. So you have to be smart about how you use things like propane and things like that. But you can run a propane or a butane stove in your house. If you've ever been to a restaurant, not a restaurant, I'm sorry, like a hotel, where they have like a, a serving line and they have like a breakfast buffet, sometimes you'll see a chef sitting there with like an omelet bar. It'll have like three or four little stoves set up, if you know what I'm talking about. And then you go through and I'd like an omelet with peppers and tomatoes and ham and bacon and cheese, please. And he makes you a little omelet up right away. Puts it on your plate and you take it off with your bagel or whatever that they gave you on the bar, the breakfast bar. A lot of times they'll be cooking with a little butane stove. So they have a little butane in a bottle and they cook indoors in a hotel where if you kill somebody, you're going to get sued until you're out of oblivion, right? And somehow that's safe. So you can use those as well. They're, the fuel is less available and it costs more money. If you're using something like a Camp Chef stove, the little one-pound propane green tanks are available at Walmart in two packs for less than $10. Now, you need to figure out how much you're going to need to get through the time if you're going to rely on that. I much prefer whatever you're using, almost like the Big Buddy heaters, the Camp stoves, all that. They all have an adapter to allow you to use a grill-sized propane tank. And that is so much more efficient and find a place that will fill it Versus a cylinder exchange. I'm going to tell you what you use cylinder exchange. So when you go to like the grocery store or Home Depot or whatever and they have the cages and you swap the whole tank out, this is what you use those for. At some point, your tank will expire, which means there's nothing wrong with it except government. And it's dangerous! So then when you have one and they won't fill it for you, you take it to a cylinder exchange. And then that's the only good thing about a cylinder exchange. Or when the place you normally get your cylinders full is not available, if there's some at the exchange, you go exchange it. That's it. That's because they, they rip you off, they don't completely fill them, and they charge you, if you have like a tank that's got a little bit left in it, and you swap it, you pay for everything you got, and you give them back something for free. If you go down to a place that fills it, where they just measure how much they give you, and you have five tanks, and you should, you should have extra tanks. And a couple of them are like, you know, maybe one was on your grill, and it's like half full, but you're going anyway, so you want to fill it up. You only pay for what they give you. But definitely... Uh, have additional propane. I really think it is totally worth the investment for most people to have at least a small generator. Uh, like the Sportsman's Generator, the Dirty Hand Tools one we've run specials on on the site. Those are like 200 bucks. They only run about 800 watts. But man, you know what? You can turn that thing on. You can put some extension cord. Now, you got to know how to safely use a generator. It has to be outside. But those things sip gas, they're quiet, they have plenty of power to run a refrigerator. You can run your refrigerator freezer for a couple hours a day and keep everything just fine. Maybe the ice cream will get soft and all, but you throw your, you keep your ice in it, you throw your stuff around it, and you can keep that running. And then, you know, maybe you can't run everything, but then you run some other things. And they're so inexpensive, at 200 bucks a piece, you can get a couple of them. I think it makes a lot of sense to consider a much larger generator as well, but at least a small generator, minimum. Um, 
it just it makes so much sense. And if you search for generator on the website, you'll find tons of information about making a selection for that. When you get a generator, please bring it home. Please put the fuel and the oil in it. Please start it. Please run your extension cords the way you would if you needed it. Please try it out. Please learn what it will run for you and what it won't run for you. I'm going to tell you what it, a little generator is not going to run for you right now. You're an electric coffee maker. It won't. I saw a dude hook up a coffee maker to EU 1000 Honda, one of the best. There's expensive little generator. And it went, and it wouldn't run it. You want to make coffee, have a French press and a way to, a French press and a way to boil water. Or a percolator and put it on your, your, your gas range. Something like that. Um, but at least a small generator, preferably a large generator. And a generator without gas is like a rifle without ammunition. Maybe you can barter it to somebody that has gas. Just like you can barter your rifle to somebody that has ammunition. But it won't do you any good when you need it. So you need to store gas. This is another thing that people will see as a significant investment. I'm going to tell you why it's not that big of an investment. 60 gallons of reserve gas. Yes, I know that's a rather expensive purchase if you have to just go out and buy 60 gallons of gas today that you didn't plan on buying. You don't have to buy it all at once, and you literally can buy five gallons a month if that's all you can do. You also need gas cans. The gas cans are going to cost money. You're going to make that investment, and you're not going to get it back unless you use them. So, Make sure you buy good quality gas cans if you can afford it and you can find them. Good quality NATO rated military metal jerry cans are the way to go. I've seen plenty of even expensive plastic gas cans over time. The seams on the top fail and they because of pressure and venting and they vent out. And then they'll still work, but they're not it's it's not a good thing. Okay. Sixty gallons is the number I use. For a reason. Number one, it will generally get you through an outage. Number two, it's an easy thing for people to get their head around. Number three, it is exactly 12 times five. And gas cans come in five gallons. And a five-gallon gas can is about the heaviest can that a person can easily pick up, move around, and dump. So it allows us to rotate our fuel annually with no real special effort. Because the way it works, when and if you went and bought three cans today, Okay, fine. You're three months ahead instead of one. And you filled them up and you brought 15 gallons home. It's March. Right on your first can, three. Right on your second can, four. Right on your, 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 your next can, five. That's for March, April, May. If you're not following where that would go. Use a great, big, beautiful Sharpie, dark color, and write on multiple sides of the can. Store it wherever you're going to store it safely, of course. Then, when you buy your next can, write a 6, a 7, an 8, and so on on it until you have cans numbered 1 through 12. Now, you get back to March. You're going to go fill up your car. Grab the can with the number 3 on it, put it in the trunk of the car, the back of the truck, whatever, take it to the gas, dump it in your vehicle, and take it with you when you fill your vehicle up. Fill the vehicle up, fill the can up. You're now back to zero. You paid for the gas last year, you're using it this year, you're rotating it. From this point forward, it doesn't cost you a dime more to keep 60 gallons of gas at all times. You don't need stable stabilizer, you don't need any fuel storage, nothing. You're using it every month of the year. Sooner or later, you're going to fill your car up, dump the fuel in the vehicle, fill the can back up. Now, you always have 60 gallons, it's always rotated, it's super easy, Just make it the first time you fill up every month 
you, you dump the can and you go get it. Okay? A small energy efficient window unit. If you've got gas, you've got, you've got a generator, and you've got supplemental heat, you may also end up with the power out when it's very hot. Very, very typical that major storm systems that take out the power grid in your area that happen in the summertime are followed by heat waves. It's very common. It's extremely common, especially when you're talking tropical storms and hurricanes. What fuels our spring and summer storms is heat. And so just meteorologically, there's almost always massive heat behind them. So the storm comes through, everybody survives, stuff's damaged, but we're starting to put stuff back together. The grid's out, there is no power. Next thing you know, it's 105 degrees. And it's usually humid. And if you have elderly people, if you have infant children, it, I mean, people that have health conditions, like this can be, inc this can actually be far more dangerous than cold in many instances. So if you have a, just a simple, high efficiency window unit air conditioner, I've seen them for under 200 bucks. You can make a comfort room. You can't air condition your whole house with your little bitty air, your little bitty generator, or even your, you know, mid-sized generator. But if you can run, just you look at how much power the draw is, and you know you need a generator sized appropriately to run a few other things. You close off that room. You know, hang, if there's no door, you hang up some curtains. Even helps a lot. You stick that air conditioner in the window. You have a comfort room. Maybe everybody hangs out there. Maybe everybody stinks a little bit. Maybe it's not the most incredible thing in the world, but you're better off than the neighbors in a big way. So make sure that you think about that as well. Next up, let's talk about security. I'm going to go fast through this because it could be a topic on of its own. Number one, mindset. I, I, I need everybody listening me, listening to me today, especially people that have been referred to this episode, to really listen to me clearly here. I don't care if you live in a gated community surrounded by other millionaires. Yes, bad shit can happen where you live and don't ever think otherwise. You're listening to a guy who's been in this industry for a long time, has a lot of friends and family members that are in security and law enforcement, and military service, prior military service myself. I've seen third world hell holes and I've seen You know, the nicest, most beautiful places in the world. I have a friend who's a multimillionaire that almost had his entire family abducted at one point because somebody considered him an enemy. I don't, and, and lived in a place that you wouldn't imagine anything bad ever happening. Please understand from a security standpoint, especially when times are bad, bad things can happen. So you need to think about security. Develop for yourself, based on your family, your capabilities, your situation, Protocols and procedures based on the situation. The protocol is a level. The procedure is how you do a thing or what you do. So the protocol means that these procedures are now in place. So it will take you back to my military days and try to keep this really simple to understand. We might have a heightened alert situation. So day to day, Being in the Army, especially when you are a mechanic like me, is not much different than any other type of job. I mean, other than you can end up, you know, thrown in the brig for not obeying an order, where if your boss tells you to do something you don't do, the worst can happen is you get fired. But day to day, it's, it's, it's really like you get up, 
If it's not a PT day, you go have breakfast, you go to, to work, you get lunch. At the end of lunch, you go back to work, you finish it, you have dinner, and then you go on about your life. And, and that's pretty much how things are. You don't walk around carrying a weapon. You don't walk around in battle gear. You don't wear a helmet. Like, you, you know, you just, you just live your life and do your job. However, maybe something goes on in the world. Now you're, you, your whole protocol will change. Maybe at the end of the day, you can still go do stuff on your own, but you have to get clearance to do it. Like, you have to report in where you'll be. I've had alerts that were like that. It's all that it was is go do whatever you want to do, but somebody needs to know where you are at all times because we're in a situation right now where we could have a, a, an alert with two hours to assemble. May not, but we could. Sometimes it's like some shit's going on. We need to be ready to deploy tomorrow. You need to be, you need to go draw your weapon, have ammo issued. All, like your protocols change based on the threat. So day to day, we don't need to live our life much differently, but when the power's out, we need different protocols. This is for security. It's also for the security of our items. So when you go to the bathroom right now and do a number two, what do you do? You flush it. Your protocol is going to change if you don't have water. You dump in a bucket, like we talked about earlier. So protocols and procedures, huge part of security. Eliminate what I call scumbag bait. Do that now, but especially in a bad situation. This is like your garage doors open in a neighborhood. That's an invitation for somebody to steal stuff. I know it's not an invitation in the way that like I would invite you to my home for tea and crumpets. But to the scumbag, it is. Things laying around that are easily picked up. Things that give away the fact that you have resources. Just eliminate that stuff. And, and, and kind of walk... Like when you have a disaster, there's some problems going on, people are doing without, you get your basic shit together, walk out in the street, walk by there thinking like a scumbag and go, is there anything here that tips me off or it's easy for me to access? And then clean that up. If you're armed, great. I'm not going to get into being an armed citizen today other than I'll tell you I think it's extremely important and I think everybody that's physically capable should own a weapon and know how to use it. The problem is know how to use it. And be ready to use it if necessary. And know when not to use it. If you own a gun, get the training mentally and physically to go along with it. And think about your procedures and protocols. There's a lot of people, they own a gun. They don't carry. Okay, fine. They keep their gun locked up in one place, their ammo locked up another place. I will give you that that's a very safe way to do things until you need your gun. But if that's you, I'm not going to tell you how to live. I am going to tell you if you start, if you have a long-term outage and you start getting reports that people's houses are being robbed, you might want to change your protocol and go to a different procedure at that point. Maybe you don't even have a carry permit, so you can't carry when you leave the house. But you know what? You can carry in your house. So you need to like put those things together for yourself there and then realize a majority of your security is in meeting your other five needs and the desires for your comfort. And this comes in a variety of ways. If you have all the food and water and, and everything else you need, then if there is a security concern, you can focus on it and make sure that you do, like, you do the scumbag walk. If you're just trying to get your kids fed and you don't know how you're going to do that, you don't have time to do the scumbag walk and say, hey, what is what is attracting people? The other side of it is, since you don't have to leave, you don't leave when you shouldn't. 
I can't tell you how many people got in wrecks during the, the, the snow and ice and cold this time because they had to leave to get something when they found out XYZ place was open. And they were on the road when they should have been. And if you're away from your home and no one's there, you're a, better, you're a bigger security target for scumbags who might have even cased your place and identified your vehicle, know you have one vehicle, that vehicle's gone, at least one person's not there anymore. So either your house is empty or you've left, because it's probably dad that goes and does it and leaves mom at home with kids. So you create security risks for yourself in having to leave for things you should have already put in place. Okay? So a lot of your security is met by meeting your other requirements. Shelter. Have a place to go if your safety is compromised in your home or your comfort so much so that it's just better to be where, somewhere else. Have a plan. And I won't get deep into this today. I've done entire shows on bugging out. But if you think you're going to go to a hotel, you better have three to four hotels already picked out, routes how to get there, phone numbers on the fly in your phone written down in documentation to call immediately as soon as you think you're going to need them because that's everybody else's plan too, by the way. And, and people say, well, you can't get a hotel room. Well, when the hotel rooms are all booked, someone's staying there and those people did. It becomes a speed issue. Have friends and family. Make mutual agreements. If shit goes sideways, you come here, I'll come there. You might, If you have that, pre-stage some stuff because you can only take so much with you So that when you show up, you're not a burden. And have them do the same thing. That, that, that's the best practice with that. Um, but have plans of where you would go. At least have it mentally thought out. Have a means to repair, even temporarily, things like leaking roofs or things that provide your other needs. So I'm on a well. That's great till something breaks. Because if something breaks at my well, either I fix it or I have to wait for somebody to do it. If something happens with your water supply from the city... Right up to the meter anyway, it's their, it's your problem, but it's their responsibility. So a lot of times we end up with self-sufficiency, we need to make sure we can maintain and take care of those things, right? So that's really, really important. Uh, inventory, both mentally and physically, your resources. Go through everything that you have available and make sure you know what you have. And then mentally go through what those things can do for you that they normally don't do for you. You might have containers that you don't store water in, but they can carry and hold water during an emergency. You know, one of those things would be a bathtub. If you know something's coming that might take out your water, what you can do is plug up your bathtubs, turn the water on, completely fill your bathtubs up to the overflow and shut them off. That's a huge supply of water. That in a bucket, you're flushing toilets. It was always there. It's always been there, right? But if you don't think, then you don't use the resource till it's too late. If you think that's a good plan, what I suggest you do, because it's free tonight is fill up your bathtub with water and see if it's still full in the morning. Does your stopper actually keep the water from draining out? A lot of you will find out it does not. It might hold water in there long enough for your kids to take a bath, but it's slowly seeping through. So, if so you might need to find another way to make sure the water stays in the tub. That's just one example. Everybody has, a, not everybody, most people's bathrooms You know, they have either, if you have a one bathroom or a two bathroom, at least one of them has a tub. There's so many things that you have available that can be used during 
or prior to a potential disaster if you just inventory them. And that's a big part of your shelter because it all lives in your house. Keep your vehicles in good repair at all times. If something needs doing, get it done. Because if you have to leave, if you have to leave, that is the time you will find that shit breaks at the least opportune time. Period. The other thing is, a vehicle is it is at least a form of shelter. Plenty of people, some by choice, some by necessity, live in vehicles. So if you have a vehicle, you have mobility and you have additional shelter. Um, we had a power outage in Arkansas one time, and it was the middle of the night. It was a really hot summer, and it was just easier than even dragging out the generator and worrying about it. It didn't look like it was going to be long term. The wife and I went out in the truck. We fired the truck up on idle. Now, outside, not in a garage like a moron, killing yourself. And we put the seats back. We put some good music on. And we, we chilled out and had a glass of wine and went to sleep in the truck. Woke up when the power came back on. Like, I mean, that is an option if your vehicle's in good repair. Uh, it also fueled up and you have reserve fuel. You got to think about it in total. And then I really need you to think about your kids and your animals. Across the board. I'm putting that under shelter because they live with you. If you have livestock, you need to be thinking about how to take care of them during a time like this. Pets, like dogs and cats, etc. Here's another part of my AAR. Because I couldn't heat the whole house, I lost a bunch of my tropical fish in my office. I could not heat this office and the rest of the house. I, I'm going to make some changes about that, but it's just something that happened, and it's something that can happen. So you got to think about your animals. Um, Plain and simple. Next, health and sanitation. If you if you have done the rest up to here, you're probably 50% there with your health and sanitation already. It's another one of those that's hugely interconnected. Health and sanitation. Water is a massive part of it. Number one thing that kills people in the world during major disasters in the third world is actually dehydration due to diarrhea. And I'll tell you why. If you give a person on the verge of dying of dehydration the choice of not drinking water or drinking contaminated water, they'll tend to drink the contaminated water almost every time. So all the things that we've been talking about, keeping your shelter in place, keeping yourself where you can stay warm or cool, uh, having ways to flush toilets, all that stuff brings you a long way in the right direction on your health and sanitation. Um, next, though, think about how to deal with human waste if you can't flush the toilets at all. And this is going to sound gross, but it's the most basic method that many of you could use if you had to. A five-gallon bucket, a toilet seat, a box of, of heavy-duty garbage bags, and the blue stuff that you pour in portable toilets like for an RV. You can do composting. There's a lot of other ways you can do this, but that will work for the majority of people if you end up at that level. And when it gets to be too much, you tie that bag up and you put it out with your waste disposal and you start over. It'll keep the stink down. Maybe you put it outside in the garage, whatever. But I know it's not something people want to think about, but you better think about it because human waste is a big cause of illness and disease and something must be done with it. If you live in a place where it ain't that hard to dig a hole and bury it, you can do that too. But have a plan to deal with it. If you have any maintenance medications... And I'm talking threshold minimum. There should never be a time when on a maintenance medication, something that you have to take, you have less than 15 days worth of inventory on. And I think that's incredibly low and stupid. But I'm going to the absolute minimum because that would definitely get you through seven. All right. 
30 days if it's a life-supporting maintenance medication. And I really think if it's a life-supporting maintenance medication, you're talking more like 60. And if you talk to your doctor, they should be willing to work with you on anything like that. And if they won't, you need a new doctor. Because your doctor's stupid. And the one thing in your life you do not need is a doctor who's stupid. Sorry. Um, have a good first aid kit and the knowledge to use it. If you go to the Walmart or, you know, Kmart or whatever, if they're still in business and you buy a 120-piece first aid kit that includes 90 different Band-Aids, you do not have a good first aid kit. You will probably have to build your own first aid kit to make it adequate. Unless you go to doomandbloom.net, Doc Bone and Nurse Amy's site, and check their stuff out, and if you're a member of my program, you get a really big discount on those. But you need to have a good first aid kit and the knowledge, like a gun, and the knowledge to use it. I have a friend from high school, started listening to my show, you know, connected with me, you know, 20, 30 years after high school, and he, he showed me this kit that he bought. It was this from uh, Cheaper Than Dirt, the stomp medical kit they have. It's basically the kit that a surgeon, would, you know, like a field-level surgeon would carry. It's incredible what's in there. I'm like, dude, you failed freaking 10th grade biology. Did you get any training on any of this stuff? No, man, but I thought it'd be a good. No, you need to know how to use what you have. Now, having some things beyond your level, it could come to a point where someone's available and then having that will help you. But you should have, like, you know, being able to, to dress wounds, to do a splint. Basic first aid training is something every person should have. By the time your kids are 12, they are old enough to get CPR and basic first aid, like, you know, uh, first aid training. Really, really, from a professional, not from you. You reinforce it, but get that professional training. Prophet hath no honor in his own country. At the time I was in school, in 7th and 8th grade, we had advanced first aid training in all public schools. I don't think they do that anymore. I got CPR certified in sixth grade in health class. Uh, again, I don't think they really do that anymore. They took away shop class. I'm sure they took away that too. But if a sixth grader can learn CPR, then a sixth grader should learn CPR and basic first aid. How to handle shock, how to handle dehydration, all of that stuff. Next, do not take stupid risks in the middle of a disaster. Think and move slow at all times. This is the best advice I can give you for your health and safety in a disaster. Men often like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix that. In a hurry. And when you fall and split your skull, not only are you now down, but the people that depended on you don't have you. When you decide you want to run out to the store because you didn't have shit like I talked about earlier, and you end up in a ditch. Now, you know, let's say you're not hurt real bad, but the vehicle's out of commission. Your, your wife's going to jump in the other vehicle. I'm sure you took the better one for the trip to come get you. You see the problem. There's so much can be held, held up with, with your health and safety. With, with the, the standard advice giving in, in self-defense classes, don't do stupid things in stupid places with stupid people and then understand that sometimes you are the stupid people. If you're doing stupid things in a stupid place alone, you have, you, since there's no one else there, who's the stupid person? All right? So think that way. Last on comfort items. Whatever it is for you, food, candy, don't get all stupid drunk in the middle of a disaster, none but a little bit of booze, whatever it is for you that makes you just feel like, you know what, everything's fine. Have some of that. You know, if it's gummy bears for your kids, put some gummy bears in reserve. 
You know, I, I'm not doing nutrition lessons today. The things that make you just feel comfortable, especially from a, a, you know, a consumption standpoint, have those. Have board games, cards, things like that. And occasionally run drills. That way we don't shock the kids. We don't shock the spouse. We don't have to call them drills. You can know their drills. They don't have to know. We're going to have camping night in, in, and bring all the kids in. and, and We're going to turn off the TV. But Dad, shut up. We turn the TV off. We're going to play games. We're going to build a tent. We're going to put down sleep. We're all going to sleep on the floor with the dogs. Right? You know, we're going to start a fire. And when you do things like that, it's amazing what happens. Here's an example. This is before I even started doing this podcast. And I started this podcast in 2008. We had the power go out at our house in Arlington, Texas, the old house we had when I first started this show. And it was winter and it was cold. And so... I started seeing the backup power. My kid just runs and grabs one of the little fire starter logs and builds a fire in the fireplace. We didn't have an insert, but a fireplace is still useful. And my wife was goes and grabs a blackout kit, and all of a sudden I've got I'm running an extension cord. My wife's grabbed the lamp off the end table and put it on the kitchen table because we had already decided that I'm plugging it in and the light's coming on and the fire's going. And my kid's sitting there poking the fire and adding a log. And we all just looked at each other and realized no one said shit. No one said a word. Everybody just went, oh, and just did their job. And it was because we had done things like that. We had fun. We had, we'd like, hey, you know what? Power's out. We're going to put a light over here and do this and what have you. And just everybody knew what to do. You know, the night you do that, cook on the grill. If you have a grill outside, if that's your backup cooking thing, go outside and cook on the grill. If you're going to cook on a little butane stove in the house, set up on the countertop, then cook that way. Just have fun with it. Get accustomed. You realize it's not hard when you when you when you know when you you're going to make hot cocoa that night. You're going to have hot cocoa and sit there and tell ghost stories or whatever on the floor with your kids. Make it on the you know the backup heat. If you have a gas range, go ahead and use it. But you know. Do what you would do if the power was out, right? I mean, just so that when it happens, it's not, oh, it's all scary. It's, oh, it's just that we do this all the time. Even And if you do it like twice a year, the kids still feel like we do this all the time. And then they know what to do, right? It, it's just not that hard. Keep some cash on hand always. Cash is king. You know, I'm going to tell you what else is king. A few cases of beer and a few bottles of vodka. I have friends who do emergency deployments and major outages with hurricanes and stuff, and they can get so much done with a fifth of vodka. So even if you don't drink, you might want to have some of that around for barter. But cash. Have, and I'm, you know, a few hundred bucks minimum. And I know some people are like, I don't have a few hundred bucks. Put $5 in a jar this week, $5 in a jar, and you just keep doing it. Until you have where you can at least... Take care of some basic needs with cash because when you finally do get to go out, you may find that the ATMs and the credit card systems and stuff like that are down. And then keep a contact book, not an electronic version. They've written down old, old school contact book, everybody you know, everybody you love, everybody you care about, and supporting services and vendors. If you're on a well and you have somebody that takes care of your well, put them in there. Find a backup to them in case they let you down or they're not available and put them in there too. You know, any kind of service that you might rely on during this, have 
at least two sources picked out in their contact information because it's going to be coming down to first come, first serve, and first need, first serve. Uh, the people that do our work on our wells for us, we have some issues with our pressure tanks after this that seem to be working themselves out now. But when we talked to them, they were like, we have people that have no water. We're going to see to them first. And we were like, that's fine. That's fine. We just kind of like want you to know that we need, when you, when you have your backlog cut up, we need you to come take a look at our softener system. We have some pressure issues. And they did, and they told us what to do about it, and they're great. That's because we have a good relationship with them. Make sure you maintain those relationships and make sure you know who you're going to call and are ready to do it quickly because that's how you get to the front of the line. When you call and they say, we're booked, again, just like the hotel, somebody's getting service, somebody's getting taken care of, and that's often why. And I just want to finish, this isn't everything, but it's fast, and it's a relatively cheap path to getting through most emergencies and comfort. If you do everything I said today, you'll probably be able to get through more than seven days. But you'll definitely be able to get through seven days in, in pretty good shape. And this is so important, and I want you to think about this. A lot of times preppers get this bad rap as being like people that are hoarders or something like that. If everybody, if 10% of the people in Texas that went without power for more than two days had been this prepared, then our gas stations wouldn't still be on the edge of being out of gas. I got a, an email yesterday from a guy who drives a fuel truck. This is we are incredibly low on fuel in Texas. Incredibly low right now on fuel. Basically, all the gas stations have gas. Some are out of different varieties of it. But the terminals are very, very low. We, we wouldn't have grocery store shelves still empty. And this wasn't that bad. It is the prepared are not a burden during the disaster. So if you have some sort of altruistic concept here, of, well, if I have things other people don't, when you don't have them and you need them, you're going to compete for them because you're going to take care of your family first because that's what people do. All I'm suggesting is you get the things you need in place prior to needing them. And if you're a person that listened through all this today and you're thinking, well, I still I can't afford $2,000 and you just make it sound like it's easy. Okay, you're probably screwed and I don't know how you made it this long. What you do is you pick and choose all the things that you can do, all the stuff that's stupid cheap or all the stuff that's free, and you do that first. And this is what you'll find. If you get your ass moving, you'll finish the race. If you don't get your ass moving, you won't even start it. And I'm sorry to be that blunt with it, but it's the truth. So many people talk themselves out of things before they even make an effort. And you will always find a reason that something can't be done if you try to find a reason that something can't be done. Conversely, you will always find a way to get something done if you commit to it. Just look at your, especially if you have kids, or even if you're just married, look at your kids, look at your wife, look at your husband. And ask yourself, do I want to let them down at a time that they need me to not let them down? Do I want to sit in my house shivering because I talked myself out of doing something about it? Do I want my kids hungry when they don't have to be? There's a way to do this. I promise you. The person that will tell me they can't is the person that buys a freaking $5 coffee a couple times a week at Starbucks that could have been put in a coffee coffee canning and at least had food. 
that easily could have asked for friends and family to save some jugs and put some water aside. Very easily. There is Most of this is either cheap or free or pays for itself over time. And at this point, you either want to do something about this, and anybody that tells me they can't do what I've laid out today, I'm going to tell them, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you don't believe in yourself enough and you don't believe in your family enough to figure this out. I personally feel very, very strongly that this information should be taught to children at the upper grade school level, not even junior high. I'm like fifth and sixth grade. We should be teaching this. I consider it irresponsible to not do the majority of these things. We cannot live in a situation where we think someone else is coming to take care of us and will protect us. The government is not coming to fix this stuff for you. And even when they are, they're not fixing it for you right away. The plan, okay, and I work with people that do search and rescue. I work with people that do emergency planning. I work with people that have served as incidents commanders. That means there's a major disaster. We're moving a shitload of resources, FEMA and everybody else in here. And there's a person that's in charge of the entire operation. I've worked with those people. I've had discussions with those people. The plan is that you will have to be on your own for some period of time. And they live by this credo. Dead rescuers save zero lives. They get everything in place first. They make an assessment They determine who they think needs the most help, who's the easy layups to help, and then they, they work in an order. And they work in a way that protects the lives and safety of the rescuers first. And they should. And so their plan, the government's plan, the, the, the governmental organization's plan, the non-governmental organization's plan, everybody's plan that's part of a disaster response, the linemen, that work on that, that risk their lives working on in dangerous situations to get your power back on the people that work on water systems the people that fight fires all of those people their plan is for you to take care of your own ass until they get to you and if you don't I'm sorry there's nothing I can do about it that's their plan I'm going to say it one more time because people have been so lulled into false security here. Their plan is for you to be on your own. In general, in a major disaster, their plan is for you to be on your own for a minimum of 48 hours. That's, that's the plan. The people coming to help you, the people that will risk their lives to pull you off a roof, their plan is for you to be on your own for at least 48 hours. And this is the important part. After the critical part of the disaster is over. So if it's a hurricane and it takes a day to rip through your place, your 48 hours didn't start if the plan goes according to plan when the hurricane made landfall. It, it starts when the hurricane goes to somebody else's place. Then the 48 hours starts and it's not always, it can be five days. It can be seven. There's a reason we said a week, a full week, not a work week, a seven-day week. Please take this seriously. Please don't talk yourself out of it. And if you're a seasoned prepper listening to today's show, I bet you it's, it's helped you figure the things that you need to plug. And again, there's a lot of other things that are good to have, but 
This will do so much. Please consider sharing this podcast with people that you normally wouldn't. Okay? Please do so. And if you've listened to this show and you like what we do, remember you can always support us by doing your online shopping at a little website called tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. If you go there, everything I've ever reviewed is in alphabetical order by category. I own it. I bought it. I spent my money on it. Or I wouldn't recommend it to you. A lot of the kinds of things I talked about today are available on T-SPAZ. If you want a recommendation on something, if you're listening to this show, you're not familiar with how we do things here, and you're like, I really do need something, and you're, you can email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. I'll give you a recommendation. And if it's not available on Amazon through my affiliate links, I'll tell you where to get it. I, I don't, I don't do this part of the show, uh, to exclusively sell everything I sell through this. I don't. It's not what I'm all about. I could have made today's show have a huge list of items you can go buy. I don't try doing that stuff, but I, I do try to help people, and I do make great recommendations. And the item of the day today is the little Streamlight Stylus Pro flashlight. It's a little $20 light. Um, there's better tactical lights or whatever, but you know if they cost three times as much and you can have three of these, three, you know, two is one, one is none, and three is for me. Uh, that means you can give them away. That means that you can hand hand them out during certain situations. But I really believe having a little light on you at all times is valuable, disaster or not. It's valuable when you when you drop something in a field. It's valuable when you can't find your keys and you're trying to get in your car. It's valuable when you're walking through a parking lot and the freaking parking lot lights just go out. It's valuable in so many situations. Everybody should have an EDC light. The Streamlight Stylus Pro is the light that I recommend. It's the best light for the most people. There's also the Micro Streamlight. There's a link in the write-up today for that. It's basically the same light cut in half uses one battery. Uh, Nicole Sauce from the Expert Council recommended it because she said, and I didn't know this till she did, that girl jeans have stupid non-pockets, and a full-size light doesn't fit in them. So uh, what I love about this light is it uses standard AAA Batteries, not some sort of convoluted, expensive light battery that you can't find. Um, the other thing I didn't mention today, really think about having a battery charger. And end-loop batteries are the, about the best batteries you can get to do this with that charges double A's and triple A's. And keep charged batteries at all times and a little inverter. You can put that in your car and charge batteries for this flashlight, for so many other things. Just a great idea. Anyway, just if you're going to do some online shopping and you enjoyed this episode... Go to tspaz.com and start there. No matter what you do, buy. Even if it's something I don't recommend, you'll help support us. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up uh, with our song of the day today. And our song of the day today has no deep um, meaning at all. And it has nothing to do with today's episode. Like sometimes they kind of tie in or have like a message. Or this is just a good, uh, a good kick-ass song and uh, something I think you'll enjoy. It's by Fleetwood Mac. It's from 2003, so it's a newer song for them, and it's called What's the World Coming To? So I guess it kind of does have some things to do with at least the time we're in, and it is a little bit prophetic. But with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. What's the world coming to? What they say isn't true. You can't plant no seeds. Where there's only
So I'm 